Okay, shalom everybody, shalom uh, Florida. Nice to be here in this hot, beautiful, sticky weather. It's nice. Baruch Hashem. We're going to go into um, four levels of simcha and as they relate to every Jew in many situations in life which you can relate to and how Rabbi Nachman has said, how he teaches how to activate them. First though, we have to bring these four categories as they're portrayed from Chazal by the sages. The Gemara brings, and it's halacha, that four types of people have to give thanks. There's what's called Birkat HaGomel. For example, when you travel overseas, you have to say Birkat HaGomel. Who has to say Birkat HaGomel? Four types of people. Number one, somebody who traveled through a desert. Number two, somebody who was incarcerated in jail and came out. Number, number three, somebody who was deathly ill and came out of it. And number four, somebody who traveled the sea, went through the seas, okay? And it's hinted to in the, in the, in the Pasuk, V'chol ha'chayim yodu chasela, are those who are alive will always give thanks to you. So chayim stands for chet is chavush, someone who was in jail. Yud is yisurim, someone who was suffering was sick. The second yud is yam. And mem is the desert midbar, mem, okay? So we look at these four categories, okay? You have the one in the desert, which means he's traveling, he's walking, he, he doesn't know when he's going to get out. Someone in the desert, you can imagine the attitude. He doesn't know where it ends. He doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know what direction to go into. Someone who's stuck in the desert, let's say. The, the danger of being stuck in the desert is the, is, the, is the psychological attitude that you don't know where you're going, where you're headed, and what's happening. You have no idea where you are. You have no footing, okay? That's the danger of being in, in, the, in the desert. And the person who comes out gives thanks for that type of mentality, that type of attitude. Now you have the second category of someone who's in jail. In jail, Sender, he knows what to do in life, but he can't do it. He's, been, he's, he's like under, in bars. He's behind bars. He doesn't have movement. He knows where to go. If you let him out, he knows that he'll, he'll start his life up and everything. He knows where to go. But there's a, a, a blockage preventing him from doing so. That's, the, that's the, the prevention, the difficulty of someone who's in jail and comes out. The one now who's sick is that, fine, there's what to do and everything, but the sickness, being in bed, bedridden, makes him so miserable that he can't do what he wants to do. It's like, not like he's in jail where others are stopping him, there's got prevention. It's the, 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 the feeling of, of frustration when coming from the inside where I don't have the movement in doing what I can do. I'm able to do it, but now there's sickness which causes major imbalance. Also, the person's head is also topsy-turvy. Yam, the sea, is really a hard level. That's where, like the, the verse, by the way, the four I learned out in the verse in, in, in the chapter in Psalms, Psalm 107. That's where we learn out the four. It's a psalm that if you follow Nusach Sfard, uh, by the Baal Shem Tov, there's this custom on Friday, right before Shabbat, before Mincha, to say chapter 107 of Tehillim, right? Where there we have enumerated the four types of people and the dangers they go through and coming out. So there, the verse illustrates the danger of the first person at sea. Yalu Shamayim, Yadu Tehomot. That literally the person, again, he can do, he knows what to do, but the situation in life throws him way up and brings him all the way down, crashes him. 
that there's inside balance, internal balance. Sickness is a physical impediment where a person can't do what, they, what, they, what they'd like to do because of the physical situation of the physical sickness, of the physical limitations. But a person who has the yam, the shaking of going up and down and the frustration makes a person topsy-turvy. There's no one to talk to even. The person's head is not there inside. The person in the desert is looking where to go. He doesn't know where to go. He's frustration from knowing what, what, what direction to take. But the person now who's trapped, who's, who's in sea, he's going through ups and downs to the scenario of life, okay? These four, Rav Nossin, Rabbi Nachman's disciple, he it portrays four types of sadness in life. Sadness attacks through anxiety, through these four different types of situations, okay? You have a situation where a person, again, he doesn't know what to do. He's in a desert. He doesn't know where to go. He's like, he feels all alone, meaning there's no one to talk to, no one understands him. He's going through such a crazy thing. And God forbid it's problems with a divorce probably, or problems with children, or problems with this and that. And he doesn't know who to talk to. There's no one to talk to. He feels like he's all alone in the desert, okay? That's the, that's the problem. And the salvation is coming out of that. The, the sadness is hitting a person that he can't express. He doesn't know who to, who to turn to even. So this, Rav Nossin says, is compared to the initial stage, believe it or not, of when a person wants to come out, in, come out of where they're trapped in and come out to Hashem. This is the stage what's called elevating holiness from the klipot, from the evil forces. Uh, that stage is called being in a desert, that I have no one to talk to, no one understands me, I don't know where to turn to, I don't know what to do. That's like I'm walking in the desert. Other cases, I know what to do, I have what to speak to, but it's a different type of obstacle. Here, it's the initial stage where I don't know who to speak to, and because of that, there's generated anxiety, worry, stress, that leads to sadness. In all the cases, we stress that sadness is the big enemy, is the big problem. The Ramban, Ramosheh ben Nachman, he points out that in the Hebrew language, the word for the nervous system is atzabim, ayin, tzadik, bet, yudmem, which is the same root for the word for sadness, atzvut, ayin, tzadik, bet, vavtav. And he says the Ramban, that this has a direct relationship and an effect on this, that sadness is the key to damaging the nervous system. And we know that when the nervous system is shaky, that leads the way to all types of problems and sicknesses, etc. Okay? So sadness is the main enemy here, believe it or not. And the job of a Jew is to be besimcha. I'm going to go off a little and we'll go back. In Parashat Kitavo, Parashat Kitavo, which is the end of the Chumash, you have there a list of 98 curses and punishments. It says this will happen and you'll eat your children and there'll be starvation, all these scary things. And at the end, it says all this will happen. Why? Tachat asher lo avadetem et Hashem elokechem besimcha uvtuv levav. You hear this? All this will happen because you didn't serve Hashem. The Pasuk is saying this. It's not a chased shavort. It's a Pasuk in the Torah. All this is happening because you did not serve Hashem in joy. The Pasuk doesn't say all this is happening because you didn't serve Hashem. If you're observant or not observant, it's saying that you didn't serve Hashem in joy. Because if there's no simcha in your mitzvah performance, it opens up automatically to all types of damages and and setbacks in life. A person that doesn't have that simcha, he really has to get on it, because when a person gets hit, which everybody does, like Rabbeinu Tam says, Rabbeinu Tam says in his book, Sefer Yashar, everybody in life gets hit. Some people get it early, some people in the middle, some people towards the end, everybody gets hit. What's the test? Your attitude 
when that happens, you're greeting the challenge, you're facing the challenge. How do you, how's your attitude when that happens, okay? This is the whole thing that determines it. So the Torah says in Parshat Kitavo, all these punishments and everything are due to not serving Hashem out of joy and have to go off tangent again, something connected to this, and we'll go back hopefully to where we, we started. In Yerushalayim today, you have the grave of King David, David HaMelech, outside of the old city next to the diaspora yeshiva. It's called Shar Tzion. They have there the original Yad Vashem, the original Holocaust Museum. It's called Martefa Shoah. They have their amazing artifacts, which you won't find in the second big Yad Vashem. One of the artifacts there is a jacket made from a Sefer Torah. Okay? That the Nazis forced the tailor to make a jacket out of a Sefer Torah. Sad. And it's on display. But the tailor was very smart. <laughs> what did he do? He took the curses from Parashat Kitavo and he put them on the back. So when the Nazi was walking with the jacket and he thought he was trying to degrade the Jews, they see all the curses. Arur, 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 all the curses on the back, okay? So to go back, the Torah itself is showing us that Simcha is a prerequisite for all the mitzvot. This famous statement from Rabbi Nachman, that it's a mitzvah, it's a big mitzvah to, to be happy always. And always the Litvaks, they say, where does it say that? Where does it say that? Where is it written? It's here. Here you go. Parashat Kitavo. Because you didn't serve Hashem, enjoy. The Torah is telling us, you have to work on having simcha. You have to get it. Because if not, you're going to be in hot water. You're going to need it. And all these punishments and curses, which is a reflection of what people go through in their life, is due to the not being enough simcha, the right amount of simcha, or not all, even at all, bichlal simcha in the first place. So going back, the first stage of the person who is in the desert corresponds to someone who is literally trapped, stuck. He's stuck, he doesn't know who to speak to. And it corresponds to someone who is like trapped in the evil, in the klipot. Rabbi Nachman's primary advice for a person to get out of this stage, which seems like almost everybody, <laughs> we'll go through this, he says is to activate simcha by acting silly, yes, and telling jokes. Yes, there is an advantage to be silly and joking because the damage caused by acting silly and, le and, and leading it to having lightheadedness and acting foolish, that damage is much, much less than the damage of someone who's always serious, everyday Tisha B'Av attitude and mentality, and he's very like that and dry and rigid. That damaging effect is much more than what, what's caused being damaged by acting silly. So the benefit of acting silly is much, much greater. So I want to make you guys a bit happy today because everyone here looks very sad. I don't know why. So I'm going to tell you guys a joke, okay? And if the joke doesn't work, then I have to do stage two. Why did the chicken cross the road? Why did the chicken cross the road? You know the answer already because you watch the videos. Why, why, why did chicken cross the road? No, because Colonel Sanders was running after him. It's okay, it works. So I, have to, I don't have to do second stage. You're still not smiling, Mr. Brass. Oh, that's not, not fair. Okay. Silly, joking, it makes you feel better. It causes a smile on the face. I see the smiles. I see this guy smile right through his mask. Oh my God. Okay. The smile alleviates, even though it's for nothing. What are you telling jokes? But how I feel now, Rabbi Nachman teaches that's needed to activate simcha. Rav Nosen explains, since the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, the simcha of holiness is, is, is exiled. When we say galut, the Jews today in Miami, in North America, don't look in galut. Everyone has nice houses, everyone has food, and parnasa, and people are healthy more or less, okay? Where's galut? 
What's galut? Galut, Rabbi Nachman explains, is the galut of simcha. That you can have everything in the world, but people are not happy. That's the galut we're going through. That's the galut of the Shekhinah. The heart of Hashem is the Shekhinah, right? The verse reads in Psalms, Natata simcha belibi. Hashem, King David says, King David representing the heart of the Jewish people, the Shekhinah, you've placed simcha in my heart. But on the other hand, you have, for example, in the depiction of the generation of the flood, the punishment of the generation of the flood, it says there at the end of Parashat Bereshit, that Hashem was saddened in his heart. And this heart, the Zohar says, is the Shekhinah. That the Shekhinah is in Galut, specifically through sadness. When Am Yisrael is sad, it's a reflection of the Divine Presence, Hashem's Presence being sad also. And we have to get out of that. This is the Galut, by the way. Our job to get out of Galut is Simcha. It's a simple verse that we recite every Motzei Shabbat. Ki besimcha tetzeu. The, the verse is on the simple level, referring to the future redemption. It says, when Mashiach comes and the Jews go back to Israel, ki besimcha tetzeu, everyone will leave with joy. Rabbi Nachman rewords it and he says like this, ki besimcha, through joy, you will come out now of what you're stuck in in life. You're stuck in major situations, you're stuck in the desert, your way out is joy. How to activate this type of joy? This, Rav Nosen explains, is the joy of acting silly and telling jokes. Should I tell another one maybe? Should I do another joke? But this one's gonna get everyone on the floor, okay? Ready? Are you ready? Oh my darling, oh my darling. Think with me please, oh my darling. Clementine, everyone's laughing, I got it, okay. That one, that's a winner, you're also laughing. Oh, thank God, Woo. okay. This is the first level. When a person's in a desert, he doesn't know what to do. Rabbi Nachman's advice, act silly. Tell jokes. Because this opens the door to see what to do, to see the avenue of hope. He has, an, he has a parable, Rabbi Nachman, a very strong analogy and parable of a clay digger. There was a clay digger in Eastern Europe. It's not a true story, it's an analogy, right? And this clay digger, you know, what type of a job is digging clay? He, make, he makes a few dollars a week, whatever. Poor guy, digging clay, digging clay, digging clay. What is that? He was digging clay for his parnasa, and he came across a chunk of diamond, a big, giant chunk of diamond. He said, whoa. He quickly ran to the local jeweler in this little shtetl, this little village in Eastern Europe, and he said, and wanted, and wanted appraisal. How much does it cost? He said, I can't give you an appraisal for this. I, I, I can't even afford to buy it. I don't care. What, what do you want from me? So what should I do? All I can tell you is you have to go to England, to the major diamond exchange in London, the world diamond exchange at the time in London, and there you can get a proper appraisal for this diamond. So he took that to heart. That makes sense. He sold everything. He had his house, his horses, his, his table, his beds. He sold everything and purchased money to buy tickets for transportation to get to England. By the time he reached the edge of the European continent, his money ran out. No more money to cross the English Channel to get to England. He saw there a giant ship, a humongous, humongous ship with a captain. And he asked the captain, look, my money is here. I'm showing you the money, it's in the diamond, okay? I'm, I, I have money, I don't have cash. You see it here, I promise you, let me on the ship. As soon as you get to England, I'm gonna sell it. That's why I'm going to England, I wanna sell it at the diamond exchange. You can come with me even. And I'll pay whatever you want, whatever amount you tell me. The captain was so happy. He said, wow, no problem. Come on to my ship. He gave him the penthouse. He took his bags with him. He brought him to the room. 
He sat him down. The Jew took out his little pieces of toast, whatever food that he brought from his home, and he's eating. And the captains were saying, "Where are you from?" And he's like asking all the questions: uh, what, how, where, "What's your story, etc.? Where's the diamond from? Whatever." So while eating, uh, the captain left him because he saw he was getting tired. The, the Jew dozed off, and the steward came into the room. The captain left already. The steward came to clean the table. He didn't notice the Jew placed the diamond on the table because he was looking at it. He was admiring his future fortune. So while dozing off, the, the steward wrapped the whole tablecloth with all the contents, went to the deck, and shook everything off into the English Channel, to the sea. After a few minutes, the Jew woke up, and he saw the tablecloth totally clean, no diamond. He started to plutz. He started to freak out. What's going to be? Oh my God, he's going to kill me, this captain. He's going to really wipe me out. And he started going crazy and going crazy. How in the world am I going to survive this? He's going to kill me. For sure he's going to kill me. And he was thinking, should I do this? Should I do that? Everything he thought of didn't make sense. To tell him the truth, he's just going to kill him. To try to do this, to try to find a loan, no, no other possibility. So he was going really, really nuts. And he made the conclusion, there's only one thing between me and sure death. And that's I have to pretend and fake it. As if everything's okay. I have nothing to lose. I have everything to lose if I don't do that. So he put on a show. He started practicing on fake smiles. You know, making all these funny faces. And he, he got ready for it, waiting for that meeting with the captain the next time. And after 20 minutes, the captain knocked on the door, believe it or not. And the Jew got really panicky. He saw through the, the hole there that was the captain. He opened the door with his fake smile. Yes, what can I do for you? The captain had a very serious and submitted face. And the captain said to him, listen, I have to ask a very, very big favor of you. He said, come in, tell me what you need. He said, listen, this ship, this giant ship, is filled entirely with a consignment of wheat. Tons of wheat for like entire, the entire English nation, if you, want, if you want. And the value surpasses your diamond even, believe it or not. The problem is like this. I'm a, mer- a known merchant and the captain. Because of that, the taxes on my bringing in any consignment, anything, any merchandise, has a high taxation level. They charge me high taxes. Do me a favor. Sign everything under your name because you're a newcomer and they have this law in England if it's a person coming for the first time or there's no taxes or there's minimal taxes in order to encourage and merchandise and merchants to do economy to build up the British English economy. So let's sign everything under your name. There'll be barely any taxes and after we cross the border, the tax border, sign everything back onto my name. The Jew thought to himself, thank you God, thank you. This is my key of salvation here. This is the opening. They did that. They crossed the border. After, as soon as they finished that, the captain was excited. He got ready to, to purpose the paper to sign back. And he began to have chest pains. He collapsed and died. He had a heart attack and died, leaving all the consignment of wheat under the name of this Jew. So Rabbi Nachman concludes this analogy like this. He said, the diamond really did not belong to this Jewish person. Proof being, it was taken away from him. The wheat, however, really did belong to him. Proof being, is that what actually came his way. And how did he get to what was really belonging to him, what was really destined to him? Because he put on a fake smiley face. He acted happy. It wasn't true. It wasn't even real. But this was the opening for salvation. Just imagine if he had his worried face and he opened the door to the captain and the captain wants a favor from him. And he sees his worried face and starts asking, what's the worried face? And none of this would have happened. Because of Mr. Smiley face, 
he was able to get to the salvation. And more than this, did he even know that this would happen? Who would have thought such an opening? He for sure didn't think of such a thought. This is like an absolute miracle and a solution being created and coming the person's way. So too, Rabbi Nachman teaches, Rav Nosan explains this point, that when I'm in a desert, like we're, we're explaining now, I don't see any opening. I don't know where to turn. Simcha, especially when generated by what's called in Hebrew, Mila Deshtuta, acting silly, acting funny, making jokes, this type of simcha cre- creates an opening. It creates a situation where there's an opening in life. You have now something to use to make it now a vista of hope in a desert. So this first stage, Rav Nosan explains, of someone who's in a desert and gives thanks, it's every Jew when they're faced with a desert situation where there's like no hope, I see nothing. I totally, just like an endless desert in my life. And yet, they activate salvation, which is worth giving thanks to Hashem through their being happy. Which, which type of happiness? The happiness activated by acting silly and telling jokes. This simcha activates the hoda, the salvation. It gives you an opening that you didn't even think of existed. Like this guy, he didn't think at all that this can actually happen. This was the opening. This is for every Jew. That Hashem opens up a situation like the Admur of Chabad, the first Lubavitch Rebbe said. He would explain on the Pasuk, From where will my salvation come from? He would explain, From the nothing, When I see nothing, specifically from the ayin, the nothingness, My salvation comes from that. First category. Second one, we said, was the one who was incarcerated in jail. He knows what to do, but he's stuck. He's stuck in prison. That's the analogy of a person who feels like that. Just nothing's working out. He knows what to do. He knows how to advance. But this business deal is not closing. I'm trying to get my kids into school. It's just not working out. I can't figure out how to make my wife happy. I'm trying this and that. I'm doing everything. I'm doing what I was told to do by the rabbis and the life coaches and the shamabite coaches. I don't see the opening with Bono Shalolam. I do, I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm stuck. I do this and it's not working, but it's supposed to work. What's going on? I know what to do here, but I'm stuck. They're not letting me move. So that's the idea of someone being in jail, that I can't move. I, I, have, I want movement. I know what has to be done. I want to have that freedom. They're not letting me to do it. What's going on? So this is situations, these type of situations create also a different type of sadness of anxiety and worry that leads to a different type of sadness which requires a different level of simcha. What type of simcha can be used in these scenarios? Rav Nosan explains, this is the simcha of hand clapping and dancing and putting on music. Right? In jail, you can't move. You can't move your arms, you can't move your legs, you can't go out. Right? The solution, this is the the spiritual jail, is that a person wants to move, I know what to do, they're not letting me move, it's like they're tying me, it's like I'm, the situation is not letting me, I'm stuck here for years now, I want to advance, I know what has to be done, but this obstacle pops up, this obstacle, obstacle, they're not letting me move. So what to do? If you're happy and you know what, clap your hands, yes, right? Yeah, exactly, chazak. To dance. Dancing and movement create the opening. Make the opening for the situation. Rav Nosen told his disciple, Rav Nisan, I'll give you a, a recipe 
uh, how do you say it? when a pharmacist gives a, a, a resume? I, I don't know. There's a word in prescription, but there's another. There's another word. It's like a French word, also. Whatever. Okay, prescription to be to get into Gan Eden. What's a prescription? You have to dance every day. He told her to dance every day. In fact, in breast of communities in Israel, every day after Shacharit and after Mariv, they take hands all together and they dance. You don't find that in other shuls. Here, the shul, the davening was Tisha B'Av, and afterwards they go home Tisha B'Av. <laughs> Simcha is needed in the dancing. You got a boogie. You got a boogie. You want to work, put on the music. If it's Vizhnitz music, if it's Bobover music, if it's Yossi Green, if it's Karla Bach, if it's Led Zeppelin, I don't know what you like. But whatever, whatever it is, you take music that gives you a boost and gets you moving. I remember by me, for example, it's being in Meron. Uh, this, unfortunately, this year the tragedy didn't allow it. But in normal years when Meron is open for Lag Bomer and you hear the music, you start flying. You start flying. You feel, your feet are not on the ground anymore. When, every, when you see like thousands of people dancing, it's something unbelievable. The hair stand, everything stands. <laughs> the, the shoes are standing, whatever, you're standing on your, your toes. It's something unbelievable. An analogy for that, a famous story told about the two holy brothers of Zushavani Poli and his brother, Rav Elimelech They would travel from city to city incognito. There was a time they had, had what's called a self-imposed exile, a self-imposed galut, and they went just as simple people, so, so no one should recognize them. They went from city to city. They got to one city where there was a curfew. Yes, there was a curfew, 8 p.m. Anybody who's out on the street after 8 p.m. was arrested, thrown into the jail, and let out in the morning after ID and interrogation. Why are you here? What are you doing? Even innocent people, they were let out. Okay? But as a precaution... A preliminary caution against burglars, thieves, robbers, murderers. They would, anyone on the street after 8 p.m. would be arrested, okay? So Rav Zushar they got to this village 10 to 8, let's say 10 to 8, and didn't have enough time to prepare where they're gonna, their lodgings, where they're going to sleep. So 8 p.m., they're on the street, the police saw them, they arrested Rav Zusha, this, this highly holy tzaddik Rav Zusha and Rav Zusha, they arrested them, put him in a giant room with mattresses all around, and the toilet in the middle of the room. And in the room were, were Jews and Gentiles. Everybody was sad. Innocent people, real criminals. Everyone in this big room together. Okay? And Rav Elimelech was sad. And Rav Zusha, the older brother, saw his younger brother, Rav Elimelech, very sad and broken. He says, my brother, why are you so sad? What's wrong? He said, look at our situation. I can't daven arvit. I can't say kachma. I can't, I can't say Torah because of the smell and the scent and being in presence of a toilet. You're not allowed, according to Allah, to do any davening. You can't daven, you can't learn nothing. Right? There's, no, there's nothing. What do I have left? I have nothing. So Rav Zusha couldn't tell him the halacha. You're not allowed to say halacha because it's in front of an improper place. So he reminded him what it says in the Shulchan Aruch. It says in the Shulchan Aruch that if you're in a situation, a scenario like this, where it comes the time to pray, say Shema, whatever, and you can't because of the situation. So you say in your heart, I want to do your will, but the situation does not allow me to do so. Let it be considered your will, Hashem. As if I actually did, did this mitzvah. I did Shema. I did the Shemone of Arvit. And the halacha says, you are accredited as if you did the mitzvah. So Rav Zusha told his brother, Mr. Super Duper Tzadik, you're always doing mitzvah properly. It's your first opportunity in your life. You're going to do the mitzvah like this. You're going to do the mitzvah like this, where you can't do it, and you have to do this as if 
uh, catch 22 situation that I say as if I'm doing it. You should be ecstatic, my brother. When's the last time you did it? Like this, you never. He got him so excited. They started dancing together. Out of the simcha, he's doing the mitzvah like this in the first time. All the inmates are looking at these two Jews, these silly Jews dancing. Rav Zush saw everybody looking at them. They decided to take everybody's hands. And he danced in a big circle around the toilet. They're all singing. No one knows why they're singing. And they're dancing around the toilet. The warden comes. He said, what's this noise? What's this noise? They said, it's because of the toilet. He said, oh, really? He doesn't want, want people to be happy in the jail. Oh, really? He opens the door. He takes out the toilet. So Rav Zusha tells Rav Zusha, now you can dive in. <laughs> to say, you see, the point of this amazing story is the solution is joy. Joy is the solution, okay? When a person's stuck in jail, like that, like Melech, okay? And they couldn't move. Nothing. Can't in. Can't breathe. I can't be happy. I can't serve Hashem. What is this? What type of life is this? In jail? The key is to boogie, to start dancing, to be happy. You don't need other people to dance. Someone who's working nine to five, right? And he's crazy all day. Just imagine how the day would be that if he takes a break five minutes, closes the door, closes the blinds, puts on his favorite uh, Karla Bach music or whatever, Dvekut Nigunim, and he just dances alone for five minutes, and then he goes back to work. Just imagine what change that did for him. As opposed to the guy at nine to five, straight, stress, 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 until five. He gets home, he doesn't know where to go. His head is, my mom is drunk. Just imagine the difference created. So this is the simcha generated by hand clapping, and dancing, also Rabbi Nachman teaches another point, clapping during davening. He says something phenomenal, people don't know this. You might find it weird to clap in the middle of davening, but he says <coughs> that when a person claps their hands in the middle of the prayers, the air generated by the hand clap while davening creates air of the Holy Land. The avir of Eretz Yisrael is created by clapping the hands while saying Baruch Shamar, Hodu, Hallelujah, by saying the words of holiness and clapping the hands. This creates that the air, the person's breathing in, and then with that air he's saying more words of prayer, that these words are, are, are at the status and the level of the Holy Land. And the whole idea of the Holy Land is Simcha. We see that by, I'm going off tangent again, uh, Yaakov and Rachel giving the name for Binyamin. When Binyamin was born, Rachel passed away. Before she passed away, she gave him the name Ben-Oni, the son of my mourning, because, Aninut, because she passed away with the death of, of the birth of the son. Yaakov, though, however, didn't keep that name. He says, no, his name will be Binyamin. Why is he called Binyamin, which means the son of the right side? Yamin is the right side. Why is he called that? Because he's the only tribe of the 12 tribes who's born in the Holy Land. And the Holy Land, when you're facing, when your head is facing eastbound, coming from Lavan's territory, which they were, so Eretz Yisrael is called the side of Yamin. Also according to the Kabbalah, Eretz Yisrael is the land of Chesed, the land of light, the land of joy. Okay, Eretz Yisrael is associated with joy. So that's why he's called Binyamin. So on a deeper level, Rachel saw, this is explained by the Midrash, and Rav Nossin explains this also. She saw, Rachel, that Binyamin, whose in portion is the actual Beit HaMikdash. You see, Binyamin, his part of the land and the Holy Land, he gets into where the Holy Temple stands today. Judah, Judah is the land of Yerushalayim, fine. But Binyamin takes a piece of where the Beit HaMikdash is, okay? So she saw that the temple which is going to be built on the land belonging to this Binyamin who's being born right now will be destroyed twice. 
And the way for it to be rebuilt is through specific, specifically those people who get up at midnight or any other time, but preferably midnight, and mourn over the destruction of the temple, mourn over the suffering of the Jews, <clears throat> which is a, a byproduct of the exile, of the destruction of the temple. In fact, all suffering in life is a result of the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. Those Jews who mourn over the destruction of the temple, they're the ones who are going to bring Mashiach. That's what Rachel foresaw. Rachel was a tzaddiket, who was a prophetess, a neviyah, right? She was one of the, four, the, the, the maternal ancestors. She foresaw this. Yaakov Avinu disagreed. Yaakov felt, yes, it's true that you need the mourning part of life. You need the, the part where you're mourning over this destruction, that destruction, this loss, that loss. But the main way to get out is besimcha. Ki besimcha tetzehu, the verse that we just brought before. With joy you get out. He says, it's one thing to be sad, but it's another thing that you get so sad you get stuck into it. You have these people, for example, they purposely watch Holocaust videos all the time because I want to identify with my national loss. And these people are always walking around Tisha B'Av attitude. They're very sad. You know, it's not, that's not a mitzvah. There's a time to be exposed to sadness, but there's no mitzvah ever to be sad, even when a person's sitting Shiva. Right? When a person is sitting Shiva. So the purpose of the Shiva is not to encourage the person to be sad. Rather, the mourning is a means to enhance the person's yearning. This person that I lost, this father, this mother, this sibling, is no longer here. So now the mourning techniques instituted by the sages in the halacha, no shoes, sitting on the floor, all these things, is to squeeze a person to feel yearning for this item. Not to feel sad, but to activate yearning. Sadness has no room in Judaism. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. Rav Nossin writes that earlier books of Musar, Reshit Chochma, whatever, they tend to scare a person. What happens to a person when he's in the grave? What happens in Gainam? All types of punishments. It gets, very, it gets very scary, right? Their intent wasn't to make a person sad. Today, though, when the person today, what we go through today, we read even a little bit of these books, we pass out into depression, Chas That's why there's no mitzvah to read books that make a person feel sad. Even Torah books, a person reads Torah books, you would think it's a Torah book, so it must be okay. But if it's making you feel sad, that's not the goal of the author. The author didn't write this book to make you sad, okay? So this is the, the, the force of sadness. And Yaakov Avinu said that even though mourning is part of Judaism, but the goal is simcha. So, she call, so he called Binyamin, Binyamin, in the name of the Holy Land, which is the right side, which is joy. So going back, clapping the hands activates simcha. When you feel your davening is very heavy, you're trying to daven, that's like a person in jail. This is a classic example. person's trying to focus on the words, but non-stop thoughts. Just, all of a sudden, the Rabbi Nachman says, you, try, you start davening, the thoughts that didn't come before, they don't come after. Dafka, you come when I'm davening. The thoughts that I now have to do this, take care of that bill, and then <laughs> leave me alone. I, I, you could have came an hour before, an hour after. You come specifically when I'm davening. These thoughts attack specifically when a person davens. And they make a person feel, I can't daven. I'm trying to pray, I'm trying to focus on the words. All I want is just to say the word. The words of davening are so beautiful. You know, when you read and learn the Siddur, you flip out. When you begin to understand what you're actually saying, David, the words are unbelievable. Most people, they don't even think about it because they're so trapped in jail, right? The way out, Rabbi Nachman teaches, is you clap your hands. Clapping the hands helps initiate a person 
to activate the simcha needed to get out of jail. If a person wants to get out of jail, he needs simcha, whether it's the physical jail or the spiritual emotional jail. This is the second level, okay? Number three is Yisurim, the person who's sick, who's bedridden, okay? Person who's sick, what's the analogy of a, of a depression like that? That a person now, he's not shackled. He's not now from an external force having obstacles from outside. It's now from within. He's the problem. Like in, in, in the davening or a person in jail, they won't let me out. Someone external, the Yetzirah always is attacking me, making me upside down, this and that. When a person is sick now, it's where the obstacles are from within the person himself. He has major, major confusions and scenarios that every time he tries to do something good, it just swallows him up as if nothing happened. Like the analogy of Yosef's interpretation of the dreams of Pharaoh. What do we see there? He saw seven fat cows and seven skinny cows. And what does it say in the Torah there? That the skinny cows swallowed up the fat cows. And the verse goes on, The skinny cow swallowed up the fat cow and you didn't even see it. The skinny cow, after swallowing up the fat cow, remained skinny. It's like when you have those crocodiles, they, they swallow a big cow and the crocodile is like fat for another two months, whatever. Okay? <laughs> Here, the skinny cow stayed skinny. So Rav explains, this is how the Yetzirah works in this stage. That a person has good days, that's the fat cows, and you have the bad days. And the bad days do such a good job of swallowing up the, 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 the good days of your life that when you get to the bad days, you feel like it was always bad. Hashem gave you good time. No, no, everything's bad. Everything's bad. Everything's miserable. Everything. When you're going through a difficult situation now, even though you had good days in life, the darkness generated for what you're going through now makes it that it was always black was always upside down, okay? This is the idea of the person who's sick. He's sick. He's trying to have expression, trying to do good, and just gets all swallowed up. Okay? For this, Rabbi Nachman's advice in these scenarios is a person has to force himself to find the good points. One of Rabbi Nachman's most powerful and important teachings is called Azamra. Azamra lelokai beodi. I will sing to God. But normally, uh, when we go on, all the questions are answered. <laughs> so all let's continue. In yourself? Huh? In yourself, all the good points? Yeah, for sure. Wow. For sure, for sure. When a person, first of all, the translation of the verse is, I will sing to God with my od, beodi. Azarma lelokai beodi. I will sing to my Lord with my od. What's my od? Od, he calls another little bit of good that I find. Another little bit, odd, odd me'at, odd, 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 okay? So here is the effort of now being positive. Being positive. Finding the good of life. Something happened, and these people, they're always looking at the negative. Ah, did it turn out like this? Ah, right? There's a famous story with Simon Wiesenthal that he was in the DPC camps, the displaced person camps in Germany after the Holocaust. And there was Rabbi Eliezer Silver, who was a chaplain in the American army. He was sent purposely, he was a religious rabbi, to revive the spirits of the Jews who were all broken after the Holocaust, after what they went through and all the family members they lost, to bring them back life. So in the DPC, the American army allowed 
for the chaplains, including Rabbi Silver, to open like a type of a Beit Midrash, a little shul in the DPC camp that all the broken Jews can come and hear sermons and Torah and be inspired and be encouraged to start again. So whenever Rabbi Silver would speak, a young man who was Simon Wiesenthal would come and interrupt. It's not true. God doesn't love us anymore. There's no God. There's nothing to be happy about life. Nothing worth in Judaism. And every time he tried to do an attempt to speak to the broken people, this young guy would always interrupt. And it happened again and again. He wouldn't let him do his job. So he saw there's something bothering him. There's something bothering him. I have to talk to this guy. What's, 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 what's going on here? So Rav Silver pulled Simon Wiesenthal on the side. He said, what's your story? What's your drive, man? What's, what's bothering you? So he said, I saw something which I can't digest. I can't believe Jews could do this. And because of that, I'm angry at everybody. What did he see? He saw that there was a Jew who smuggled into the camp a sitter, a super tiny sitter. And he allowed anybody to use the sitter in exchange for their daily ration of bread that they got in the camps, which means definite starvation and almost definite death if now they went a, went a day without that little piece of bread that they got from the Nazis. So he said there were lineups of Jews willing to die, to starve to death, to use their, that sitter. So he was upset. How could the Jews, first of all, allow themselves to do that, you know? And how could such a wicked person, he survived, the guy who had the sitter, with all the bread he was getting, he made it to the Holocaust. He survived, he didn't die out of starvation. How could he have the audacity, the chutzpah, to do such a thing? To kill his fellow brethren, you know, for their daily ration, just to give away the sitter? So Silver said, I understand your point. But look at the side, the virtue of the Jewish people, in the same situation, that they're willing to sacrifice, to die in Kiddush Hashem, to starve, for the sake of davening. They want to do that. You know, they're not obligated. And in fact, maybe it might, it might be technically, if you ask some rabbis, forbidden to do that. But these Jews anyways are dying on Kiddush Hashem. The whole situation in the Holocaust was to die as a Jew as Kiddush Hashem. So they were willing to line up to do that. That's what you, you should look at. And Simon Wiesenthal, he said that affected him for the rest of his life. From then on, he saw that in every situation, you have two sides of the coin. You have the negative, and the positive, is the cup half empty? Is it half full? The tendency of people is to look black. The al-sheikh, the holy al-sheikh on the Chumash, he says, Hashem created mankind, that the pupil of the eye looks black, even though it's see-through, but it looks black, right? It looks like a black dot, right? So what does that show? That the nature of a person is to look at things negative. That's the nature. That's how things are. Yes, you got to work not to look at the negative. It doesn't come by itself. There's not people, oh, he's born like that, he came from such a nice family, and they're always positive and that. No, 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 no. Everyone starts off with this test of looking at things negative. You got to build it. You got to work on it. And he teaches Rabbi Nachman, you have to find the good in yourself and in others. And he says more than that, that if you find the good in yourself, then automatically you can find the good in others. And if you don't find the good in yourself, you can't find the good in others. That's why, for example, a parent comes home and he's angry. It's because he's angry at himself. He lets it out on his kids, on the wife, on the ishbacha. He's not happy with himself. Simcha. So Rabbi Nachman teaches the idea of someone who has a malady. That's, that's one of the four who have, uh, have to give thanks. Represents someone who's spiritually sick. That they're always looking at things negative. Negative, negative. They try to do something, but their negativity doesn't let them to do it. So they need to find the good points. Okay? But then you have a fourth scenario where all of these three, okay, but a person now 
is really, really stuck. And that's the person now who's like in the sea. Where the sea, the turbulence of the sea, doesn't allow for what's called yeshuvadat. You don't have the brain to think of these things. Because you need a brain to remember to act silly. You need a brain to remember to dance and boogie. You need a brain to find your good points. What if now the situation I'm going through makes me like a walking zombie that I don't know what to do. The turbulence of life makes me so drugged and drunk that I can't think clearly and I don't know where to receive encouragement in life from. That I can't think of these things on my own. I need an external boost to help me to find the good, to find what to be happy about. For this, of Nussin's advice, the strongest, far-reaching, that if nothing else works, telling jokes doesn't help you, it's because it's hard, and then dancing doesn't help you, and finding the good points doesn't help you. His final advice that he gives, even though there's much more, but in, in comparison to these four, the one now who's in the sea, turbulence, this advice is, believe it or not, that a person needs a tzaddik in his life. You need a tzaddik. It's not enough, okay, I'm a Jewish person, I have my shul, I have my local rabbi, I have my daf yomi program, I have Hashem, you have the Torah, and that's it. Why do you, why do you breast of us drive us crazy, you chassidim, drive us crazy, we need a tzaddik, a tzaddik, a tzaddik. What is this thing about making such a thing? We didn't have that in Morocco, we didn't have that in Lithuania. What are you guys making such a story? I'm a tzaddik now, we need a tzaddik. Ah, so if Nassim explains the analogy of the destruction of the temples. First and second temples were, were the Gemara says, I think it's a Gemara in Moed Katan, that says the Beit HaMikdash, the roof was burnt, and down, down, up to the foundations, the Yesod, velo ad bichlam. But the, 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 the burning of the temple did not reach the Yesod. This is besides the Kotala Maravi, the western wall, which you know stands, thanks to King David. But the foundations of the temple were not burnt. So Rav Nosan explains, Yesodot in the Torah, uh, Torah language, in the Kabbalistic language, Hasidic language, is referring to a tzaddik. It's a simple verse, a straightforward verse in Mishlei, where it says, V'tzaddik yesod olam. The tzaddik is the foundation of the world. So tzaddik and yesod, you have one pasuk that joins them together. Meaning, you have a person whose personal Beit HaMikdash is burnt out. The brain corresponds to the Kodesh Kodashim, the Holy of Holies in the Temple. The heart corresponds to the altar of the, of the, of the, of the Mizbeach, of the, of, the, of the Beit HaMikdash. A person is burnt out. He's wasted. He's gone through so much in life. He's also done so much in life that his personal Beit HaMikdash has been burnt. If he has a tzaddik that he relies upon, a true tzaddik, who's someone who has major, major compassion, major rachmanut, and is able to offer endless encouragement and boosts to start again and to always be besimcha and to activate any form of simcha in order to get back on their legs this is what's called the yesod so that a person can be burnt with what they're going through but because they have a tzaddik this tzaddik has a responsibility on this person more than other people in the Jewish people in the, in the world because this person is close to him and the, the burning is up to the yesod but not including the Yesod, meaning when a person has access to a tzaddik of that caliber, he can have non-stop boosts to restart in life. This, Rav Nossin explains, is the antidote for the fourth category of the people who are literally being swept by the, the sea storm, Ya'alu Shamayim, 
you do Te'amot going up to the heavens and then down to the depths like the waves do in a, in a typical sea storm. This is what a person is going through a spiritual sea storm that is such turbulence and unclarity and he can't even think straight. The guy in the desert, he, he, he doesn't know what to do, but he's in a limbo in the sense he doesn't know where to go. But here, they don't, the person can't even think like a human being. I can't even go in a desert. I'm stuck in such turbulence of lack of clarity. And because of the depression that a person is going through through these type of situations, so what's needed is a tzaddik who can activate the joy for that. So we mentioned a lot of points, but what came out of this class are four advices how to besimcha. First one, for those who weren't here, we'll say it again. It's, oh my darling, oh my darling, okay? Half are laughing, half are not laughing. What happened, Mr. Brass? You have to laugh, come on. I don't want the chutzlar, it's heaviness, please. We have to bring the simcha v'aretz Yisrael. And the second one is the hand clapping, tabugi. Okay, put some decent black, whatever it makes you j- j- jive and whatever, whatever you need, okay? Number three is finding the good points. And number four is finding that tzaddik who can always illuminate you in everything you're going through. Here at Son, we spoke a lot, I think. We went through a lot here. Is that Hashem? We should always be happy. We should break the seriousness. Use it. It works. It works. And like Rav Nossin promises, you're stuck in life. When you're stuck... So you start going nuts. You start thinking of 5,000 things. I used to speak to this rabbi, this life coach, this psychologist, this lawyer. You don't know what to do. You start like you're in a panic when you hit. You don't know who to turn to. But now, if a person gets so frequent, so accustomed to being happy, when things in, in the status quo, day-to-day grind in, gen, in general life, he's always working on simcha. So by instinct, by reflex, when a person is hit with these scenarios, he runs to joy, he runs to simcha. Because you're working on it so much, it becomes a part of your subconscious. That you automatically know that simcha is the solution, simcha is the salvation. Meaning, again, what comes out of all this, is that simcha is not just a means, like a patch. It's the solution, period. Like this, the, the clay digger of Zusha Melech, it solves the problem. That's the key. So what should I invest in? You know, you have 5,000 options. One of them is to be besimcha. Normal people say you're wasting your time being besimcha. Something just happened, and you start clapping your hand in it. And then they say, you're nuts. You have to do this. You have to speak that person that. No, no, no. This is what I have to do. Because if I try to do anything else, and I'm shaky, my nerves are upside down, like the Ramban says, I'm apt to make the wrong, mis- the wrong decision. I'm going to for sure make a mistake. And we see that 10 years down the line, people make mistakes. They make major mistakes. They said, if only if I knew this, if only I did that, if only, if only, if only, right? What was missing at the time was trying to be besimcha. I myself am speaking of this from, from actual personal experience when faced personally with a major, major challenge and difficulty in my life. I had this story of the clay digger to remember, thank God, and to think positively. And Baruch Hashem, we had a major Yeshua in life, Baruch Hashem. I bless everybody and encourage everybody to get into being happy, getting to Omar Darling, getting into dancing, getting to finding good points, and find a tzaddik, find a Rebbe that will shine you this light so you can always be happy. Bezrat Hashem. All right. Chazak Baruch. Bravo, Rabbi Nachman. Rabbi Nachman. Rabbi Nachman, Rabbi Nossin. Everything we said here is in the books. No, yeah, what song? No, what was that song you were singing? I can't hear it. Speak, speak English. Be happy, that's it. Don't worry, be happy. Any questions, anything? Anyone want to say anything? So Bobby McFerrin was a breast liver.
don't worry, be happy. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, please. That's what I'm waiting for. Yes. Shh. Question. Good question. Where do you find such a tzaddik? This guy's laughing. The person behind you is laughing. <laughs> and I know why he's laughing. Okay. You have a good question. I can't give you an answer because I'm obviously biased. And that's not fair because I have my opinion. Okay. All I can tell you is that you have to start asking Hashem to bring your way this tzaddik who's going to shine your life. Your prayers are what is going to bring you to that address. I will say one tzaddik, someone will say another tzaddik, another tzaddik, another tzaddik. You have to daven really hard. Sincerely, honestly, Hashem, if this is the way, so show me, show me a tzaddik who will come my way. Just to give you a little of a hint and a little help, when we say a tzaddik, it doesn't have to be someone who's physically alive. Because the Gemara says, and the Midrash says, and the Zohar says, tzaddikim bemitatam kruim chayim, tzaddikim, and they're passing, they're called alive. Plus another statement which is even stronger, gdolim tzaddikim bemitatam yoter mi tzaddikim are greater in their passing more than when they were alive. So meaning, you can have a physical tzaddik, like a rabbi, that you go to and you see him and he's shining, he has a big shtrim or whatever, I don't know, and he's giving such a light. But you have tzaddikim who left behind teachings that till today inspire people so much so that you feel that he's talking directly to me. I can't believe this. I'm going through what I'm going through in my life. I opened this book, which was written 200 years ago, and he relates to me exactly. How, do you, how, how, how is that possible? That's what's called the Ruach HaKodesh divine inspiration found in the teachings of true tzaddikim, that they can go all the way down to your nitty-gritty and relate to you. So, the way to find where's the address, it starts with the mouth, with asking Hashem, because nothing propels a person forward like the mouth, like prayer, like speech, what's called hitbodidut. This is what makes a person move in life. You're going forward in every area of life is dependent on the mouth. The mouth is like a grinding mill. It produces non-stop, spiritually, the words that you, that you emit in prayer propel you forward. It's food, it's, it's, it's nutrition, it's vitality, it's life. That's what gets you forward. So this is how to come to the right address to find that tzaddik. All right? We're okay? Yes, yes, please. What is the English word for Yisod? Foundation? Foundation. Yisod means uh, foundation. Yisodot abinyan, the foundations of a building. Yeah. A tzaddik is called a foundation because like we said, we can rely on him. That's his job. His job is to be there for others. That's a tzaddik. The true definition of a tzaddik, believe it or not, is that his ability to help and illuminate other people is there strong. You can't wobble him. He's not like us that we're like uh, wobbly and jelly. He's solid. He's strong. He's made it. So because he's made it, now, his whole mission in life is to share with others. That's the tzaddikim. Tzaddikim are not tzaddikim for themselves. Tzaddikim are, once they reach the title, they're tzaddik, that's it. They're from Israel now. That's it. They no longer have their personal, private lives. They're given over from Israel. That's their whole inyan. That's a tzaddik. I have a question. Yes, please. One more time, please. You can't hear. Some 
health issues, <coughs> we have some outcomes like that's what we spoke about that we, he, he has to make a decision to act silly, to, to tell jokes to dance a little to be positive we had someone like that in, in Eretz Yisrael recently there was a breast liver, his name was Kalman Goldschmidt he died from cancer believe it or not but it took, from the time he was diagnosed and they gave him a few months until he actually died, it took about 5-6 years and this man left with a smile on his face he left with such simcha that he didn't feel like he, you didn't, like, you didn't feel bad and he also didn't feel his leaving. He was so on a positive attitude, he took it positively. Which means, we see someone with terminal cancer, we feel automatically X, negative. But one second, how does he feel? To explain what I'm trying to say, listen carefully. There was a, uh, a chassid who lived in Tzfat, and he would walk every week or every day from Tzfat to Meron and back by foot. Okay? He was so poor, he couldn't afford a, a horse, a donkey, or whatever, a wagon, so he'd walk on foot. And his shoes got worn out, and he was very poor, and he reached a point where he had no shoes. His shoes were totally worn out. So he had no shoes now, and he needed shoes. So he said to Hashem like this, he said, Hashem, or give me new shoes, please, or give me the dot, the knowledge that I don't need shoes so I can accept it with joy and emunah. This attitude applies for everything. If a person is hit with cancer, his davening should be Hashem. If this is what you really don't want, then heal me. I ask of you Hashem. Heal me. Give me a healing. But if this is what you really want of me, and I Hashem have reached a point in my life where I no longer want my own wantings. Now, I've been hit so badly, I want what you want. If this chas v'shalom Hashem is what you really want from me, and, and you're convincing me that this is what you want, this is the Ratzon Hashem, so let me accept it b'simcha b'emunah. So we standing outside are not davening this type of davening. This person who's going through that challenge, this is his scenario now. And he has to make that, 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 that type of... Uh, ultimatum to God, as if, ultimatum to Hashem, Hashem, or help me, if this is not what you really want, if you're expecting me to find a solution, so I beg of you, help me to find a solution. If now Simcha is going to heal it, fine, because then I know that, that, what, that, that, that this situation can be healed. But if this is not what you want, and this is a decree that I must accept, so then let me accept it with Simcha Bemuna. Let me not take it negative. We see things from our own eyes. We see someone leaving and dying and this and sickness. Automatically we see it negative. But the person going through what they're going through, maybe they're seeing it from a positive frame. We don't know. Until we're in their shoes. We should never be in those shoes, right? We should never be in that situation. But this is the attitude. This is the test he's being faced with. That's his test. When you, always, when you're standing outside, it seems much more painful than the person what they're going through inside. When they're going through a situation... They're, they don't feel it as much as people outside. When you see a video of children starving or the children in Africa, you have such rahmanut. But with the person going through what they're going through, they don't necessarily feel it that bad. There was a Holocaust survivor. She was my neighbor, Mrs. Fleischer, I remember. And she said she survived Bergen-Belsen, which was the worst. Bergen-Belsen was the worst of the camps. They were just starvation, starvation. So she said that when the, the, the British soldiers came and the Canadian soldiers and the Americans, they came when they saw for the first time these walking skeletons, they were so like shocked. 
But she said, but we, we were already used to it. We saw each other every day. We got used to seeing each other like skeletons and bones like that. Meaning, the person being tested, you don't know how they're looking at it. I see it outside from a, 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 like a, like a, a viewer from outside. But the person going through the test, that's the Inyan now. So now, what you said, how can I make him be besimcha? It's not my job, that's his job. What is my job? My job is to daven for him. We have some more time. We have another five minutes. We can go on a little. There's something very important. Rabbi Nachman says, he told someone, he told one of his disciples, Rabbi Yudu, who asked him, you know, about the idea of, of you davening for other people. You know, in a way, it looks like haughtiness. I have the ability to pray for other people. So Rabbi Nachman says, no, that's not the way. He gave an analogy of a king and a prince. And the prince always did bad things. And the king got so fed up and upset, he kicked him out. And the prince came crying to his father, the king, to come back in. The king, having compassion on his son, he let him back in. And this happened again and again. Ping pong. He gets angry at him. He did something wrong. The king kicks him out. And the son, the prince, begs to come in. And the father lets him back in. And again and again and again. It's the king said, this is a vicious cycle. This is ridiculous. I'm not getting anywhere. What did the king decide? He placed a special type of soldier whose whole job was not to let the sun into the castle. Because if he lets the sun in, the sun will, will make the compassion of his father, the king, so broken that he'll let him in. He knows that. So he made a guard position that the job of this guard is not to let the sun in and on no, and under no circumstances. So it happened. The prince wanted to come back in and the guard says, no, you're not allowed to come in. No. So the, the, the prince says, please, I beg of you, let me come in, please. I just want to speak to my father, the king. I want to ask him forgiveness. The guard, no, you're not allowed in. So he kept on asking and asking, and the guard began to feel really bad. He said, wait a second. If the son feels like this, most probably, Mistama, the father, the king also feels like this. Because there's a, there's a, there's a rule in Judaism that the way one person feels to one person, the way A feels to B, that's how B feels to A. So most probably, if the prince is feeling like this towards the king, the king also feels this pain. So the guard went to the king and asked the king, let, let your son in. He came in, the king was crying, yeah, let him in already, let him in, I can't stand it, let him in, okay? So what's the idea? He says, Rabbi Nachman, that every Jew, every, every, every other Jew is the guard. And the Jew, your fellow Jew who's going through a difficult situation is the prince, and Hashem is the king. Who's stopping the prince from coming to the king? You. You're the one responsible. What does that mean? That if Hashem made you exposed to people with their suffering and their difficulties, it's because you can do something about it and you have a responsibility to do something about it. And if you don't, you're held responsible for not doing. And what's that? Your prayers. When Hashem sends your way, this person's going through this, it's not now you take it and you make you feel bad. You're sent, it was sent your way to hear this information and to do something about it, which is prayer. Your prayers to Hashem will open the blockage. The blockage between Reuven and HaKadosh Baruch Hu and you, Shimon, are in between. You have, uh, what's it called? Gisha. You have access to the king. He doesn't. So now, Reuven is, is bugging you with his situation. You're faced with it. Your job now is to daven and to believe that your daven is going to make the difference now. Because if that's not the case, Hashem wouldn't send your way to be exposed to this. You hear that? All right, we're okay. Chazak u'baruch. Was the Hashem.